Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. There was an occasion when Jesus' disciples were observing Him pray. And after he had finished praying, they came to him and said, Master, teach us how to pray as John, he was, they were referring to John the Baptist, taught his disciples to pray. And the result of that is what we commonly know as the Lord's Prayer. Actually, that is not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer because elements of that prayer would indicate something that did not apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we're going to begin looking at the 17th chapter of John, if you'll turn there. What you perhaps already know is this is the actual Lord's Prayer because it is His communication with the Father in the presence of of at least some of the apostles. We don't know how many of them were there. It's possible that all the remaining 11 would have been present as he taught. But the entire 17th chapter is this prayer. There's much for us to learn. I'm going to suggest to you today, and I'm not an authority on anything, but what I'm going to suggest to you today that this is the greatest prayer ever prayed, and we're going to look at some reasons as to why one would say that. The first reason is that the person who prayed it is the most amazing person who's ever walked the face of the earth. Let's look at John 17, and we're going to read through verse 5 from the New American Standard Bible. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This prayer neatly divides into three areas of petitioning. Jesus first in this passage that we're looking at this morning is praying for himself. Then beginning with verse 6 through verse 19, he prays for that immediate group of disciples whom we know as the apostles. And by association, we too were included in that petition. But more precisely, praying for the church, which was soon to be formed on Pentecost by the work of the Holy Spirit, he prays for the church in the world and the spread of the gospel beginning with verse 20 to the end of the 26th verse. Let's consider why this is the greatest 
prayer ever prayed because of the one who prayed it. Who prayed it? Well, of course, it was Jesus Christ. Let's recall who Jesus is described as being in the first chapter of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This preposition which John uses in introducing Jesus, the Word, he was in the beginning with God, and he was with God. The words, all the words of the Bible are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we really cheat ourselves if we neglect any of those words. Some of the most innocent looking words are powerful in their communication. With the little preposition with, prefacing God, was a word which was used in the Middle East during this era in history when two leaders of a Middle Eastern tribe or nation would come together for a powwow, there was a much pomp and ceremony as you would expect in such a setting. But what was done was that there were a s several pillows that were present and the host potentate would give instruction to his servant to make sure that either he or his guest, whichever was the shorter of the two, would have enough pillows to sit upon so that they would be looking eye to eye. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what we see in those three descriptions of Jesus as the Word, is that Jesus was not God Jr. He was the Son of God. He played that role in the Godhead and still does to this moment. But He was fully God. Just as surely as God the Father is fully God, so is Jesus the Son fully God. So this is God praying to His Father. And that must raise a question at least one person's mind here today. What is God doing praying to God? I'm glad you asked. Let's go to John chapter 5. What we know is that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. As we read from Philippians 2, we read how Jesus... Even though he was God, emptied himself and made himself nothing. He did not empty himself of his deity. He emptied himself of his right to exercise all the attributes of God having to do with power. He did not empty himself of the character traits of God. Jesus, in every situation, thought like God the Father, spoke like God the Father. Also, He acted like God the Father in relationships. But He sublimated Himself to the will of God by becoming one of us in the fullest sense without having any sin as He entered the world, but also never sinning. 
as he was fulfilling his role as our Savior. Let's look at John 5, 19, and then we'll look at verse 30. We've looked at these before, but let's look at them one more time. In John 5, 19, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. It's easy to see that this is communicating, Jesus is the speaker, of course, that he only did what he saw the Father doing. He patterned everything he did after the person of God the Father. Look at verse 30 in the same chapter of John. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus reiterates what he said in verse 19. I can do nothing on my own initiative. In fact, he would say nothing except that which the Father gave him to say. He says essentially the same thing another time, at least one more time, in the Gospel of John, in John 8, 28. So why would God pray to God? Well, here's why. He lived in that kind of dependent relationship in his humanity when he was here on earth. He had to identify radically and completely with us in order to understand us. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. In order for him to be our Savior, he had to be tempted in every way as we. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, that quotation is from the fourth chapter of Hebrews. In Hebrews 2.18, there's a remarkable statement. And for years, I read right past it. And then not too long ago, I can't remember how long ago, just a year or two ago, I noticed in 2.18 of Hebrews how it says Jesus suffered when he was tempted. Jesus suffered when he was tempted. This is the purest person who ever lived and the very rubbing close to sin by being tempted caused him great suffering. So we know that we have a high priest who can understand us. There's not anything that you go through that Jesus did not go through in exponentially more ways in that situation. But here's another reason God would pray to God. For fellowship. Jesus loved to have fellowship with his apostles and his disciples. He still does. However, there was no way he could have full fellowship, could he? Not really, like he had had in eternity past with the Father before he became one of us and left heaven. He was having that fellowship with the Father in equality with the Father. Well, let's go back to John 17 now and begin to look at some of the things that Jesus taught. 
He teaches us something about the posture of praying. Look at verse 1 of John 17. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, and we see what he said. And before I forget it, there are five petitions in this prayer. This is a prayer of Jesus petitioning the Father, and he petitions on his own behalf in this section of Scripture, and the other four have to do with those who are disciples, that would be us, followers of Jesus Christ. How does Jesus pray as regarding a posture at this point? He lifts up his eyes to heaven. He prays with his eyes open. Now, I don't know how you learn to pray publicly or privately, specifically publicly, but I thought somewhere in the Bible it must say, if you open your eyes when you pray, you're in big trouble. <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's not the case. How can we pray without ceasing as the Bible commands if we have to always have our eyes closed? Right? And I'm not saying let's start a revolution in our church and everybody pray with your eyes open. If you want to, that's between you and the Lord. There's nothing immoral or illegal from God's point of view to pray with your eyes open. But he lifts his eyes to heaven. We know in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knelt when he prayed. We know as time progressed in that excruciating time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was so distressed about what lay ahead that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, that he stretched out on the ground. These are postures of prayer that Jesus himself employed. There's not one posture that is prevalent in Jesus praying. But what we do know is he always had a heart of humility, as we've seen, and submission to the Father. So the posture of the heart is what is important when we pray. You understand that. And we want to have a heart of humility when we come before the Lord, recognizing that we're coming before an all-holy God when we pray. Also, what we notice here in verse 17, as he begins to verbalize the prayer, in the first verse, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So he speaks of God as Father. And this raises a big question and answers the question, actually. To whom are we to pray? Are we to pray to Jesus? Are we to pray to Holy Spirit? Or are we to pray to the Father or all three? Well, in this prayer, this prayer of Christ, the Lord's Prayer, which is designed to give us an insight into how to pray to the Father, on the behalf of others in particular, what we see, he uses the word Father six times in the passage. So he's praying to the Father. So we're to pray to the Father. Keep your place, please, where you are. And then turn to the book of Ephesians, the second chapter. I can't tell you how many times people have come to me asking the question that's being answered for us now by Jesus and also by the Apostle Paul. The Holy Spirit's going to teach us about praying just like he does everything else through the Word of God. And what we learn here is to whom we're to pray. 
It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. For through him, this is referring, if you read the context, to Jesus, so we can insert Jesus' name here. In verse 18 of Ephesians 2, for through Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit. Now, the both refers to people who are descendants of Abraham, who have embraced Jesus as the Messiah and as their Savior and as their Lord, as well as people who aren't Jewish, Gentiles like most of us. So what Christ did, he made it possible for people of all ethnicities to know God through him and to pray to the Father through him. Jesus is the mediator. Paul puts it this way in, in his writings to Timothy. He says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Which, by the way, answers the question about Mary. Is Mary a co-redemptrix? Mary, the mother of Jesus, a co-redemptrix with Christ? No. The Bible's pretty clear, isn't it? There's one mediator between God and man. Just one. That is the man, male, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. So look again here at verse 18. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. To whom are we praying? We are praying through Jesus. And it says in one spirit. The word in can equally well be translated. I believe it's better translated for our understanding about the way we're to pray. Through Christ, by one spirit, we pray and have access to the Father. So the Holy Spirit is integrally involved, essentially involved in our praying, as we're going to see in just a moment. And we're praying to the Father, just like Jesus models it in the 17th chapter of John. Turn to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. Don't lose your place in John 17 because we're working our way back in that direction. Let's read in Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. If there's one thing we could say about us apart from Jesus Christ, it is that we are weak. We are impotent to do anything to honor the Lord, to glorify the Lord. And certainly it's true when it comes to praying. We are weak. That's what is said right here in Romans chapter 8. The Holy Spirit is the one who has to help us in our weakness. This is a role which He plays in effective praying. The second part of verse 26 says, For we do not know how to pray as we should. Not only are we impotent in praying, we are ignorant. We don't know how to pray. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us for praying. It does not mean our minds become non-involved. What it does mean is we pray in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And we've learned in the 
book of John, as we've studied it for several months now, especially regarding this upper room discourse, Jesus says that I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of the truth of truth. And that spirit is going to be the one who teaches you all things that I have taught you. What has he taught us? Well, there's no way we can exhaust the possibilities of what the Holy Spirit has taught us that Jesus had taught the apostles. But he certainly gives us insight into how to pray. He comes in alongside of us in our weakness and says, where you are weak, I am strong. And he comes in along of our ignorance and he says, you don't know how to pray, I do, because I'm God and I'm given this responsibility in the Godhead. I'm going to be helping you and in interceding. And you might say, I thought Jesus is our intercessor. Well, isn't it okay to have two intercessors? Nothing says there's anything wrong with that. And we know that he lives to make intercession for us. Night and day he prays for us. That's why he ascended back up to heaven and assumed his position at the right hand of God the Father so that he could petition uh, for us and pray for us. But the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us and gives us the words to say to the Father. When I pray and you pray, sometimes we use a prayer list because we don't want to forget people that we should be praying for. By all means, that's a good thing to do. There's evidence that even the Apostle Paul used a prayer list. Some people have pointed to the last chapter of Romans. And at the end of that, have you ever read that? We usually just dismiss those listings of names because they don't mean anything to us. But they meant a lot to Paul and it's conceivable, if not probable, that he prayed for those people. They're part of his prayer list. They were people who were on his heart. When he wrote the letter to the Philippian church, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. And every time I remember you, I pray for you. And you are in my heart, he said. That's the heart of a man who loves God and loves the people of God. And that's not something that's reserved simply for a man like Paul, who is an apostle, a great teacher, a prophet, or anybody who is in what we commonly call Christian vocational work. Now, if you've been around here very long, you know that I just kind of cringe when I think of limiting the ideal of a vocational Christian to people like myself who've prepared educationally and had practice at doing what I do as a pastor. I'm one of millions, if not hundreds of millions, of people who know Jesus Christ who are to be vocational Christians. So understand that. And what we need to understand is that when I pray or you pray, sometimes I start praying and I'm not sure what I'm going to be praying about. But what I do know, and I mentioned this last night to our people who were gathered here to worship the Lord last night, I asked the question, as you're praying, does a name ever 
come into your mind just like that out of clear blue. Or when you're not even praying, you're just tooling through life and all of a sudden a person's name comes to mind. Well, here's something that I have, I believe, been taught to do by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit. Assume that the Lord's brought that person to your mind. And you may not know what the need of the person is. You may know what the need of the person is. If you do, pray according to the person's need. But even if you don't know, what you can do is you can pray for certain things that are according to God's will. The Bible says this is the will of God, even your sanctification. If the person is a believer, we don't know what's going on in his or her life, but we can say, Lord, I pray that you will sanctify him or sanctify her. I pray, and we're going to learn that Jesus talks about this. This is a phenomenal teaching piece as we eavesdrop on Jesus' intimate time with the Father. We learn how to pray for each other. And one of the things that he says is sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. So I can pray that way and you can too. I hope you begin to study this prayer. It's the greatest prayer prayed by the greatest person who ever walked the face of the earth. But we can pray for each other like that. We can also pray for one another's protection. That's the will of God too. If you don't know how to pray for someone, pray for their protection. And there are several other things which you and I can pray. Going back to Romans 8, let's finish these two verses. I'm going to begin with the part in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Who might be the one who searches our heart? Holy Spirit is privy to what's in our heart. He's God. Jesus is too. But He's talking about God the Father here, undoubtedly. Because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Who intercedes for us according to the will of God. Jesus does, we know that. But in this context, in Romans 8, Holy Spirit does also. So, how are we to pray? To whom are we to pray? We're to pray through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit's power, linking in to Him, and He knows what we need to pray. He'll bring it to your mind and bring it to your heart and you can pray. And then the Father is the one to whom we pray. Also, Jesus, as He did everything, prayed according to the Father's will. He yielded to the Father's will. Go to John chapter 6 for just a moment. Isn't John a rich piece of literature? If all we had was the... Gospel of John, we'd have more than enough for a lifetime of understanding who God is and what God wants from us. Those two things and how we can be empowered to do those things that He would have us to do. In John chapter 6, look at verse 38 of John chapter 6. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
that would certainly be included in his praying. So he teaches us to do his will. Let's go to John 17 again. In John 17, 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. If you're familiar at all with the Gospel of John, you know this has been spoken of by Jesus as early as his first sight of a miracle. The first miracle that he did uh, that is recorded was in the second chapter of John when he changed water into wine and salvaged a wedding party. And so what we know is that he said, my hour has not come to his mother when she wanted him to do something that would reveal who he was. She knew who he was, of course. It was to her that the angel Gabriel appeared and told her that she was going to be the mother of God's child by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus had said this before. Years later, two years later probably, at a Feast of Booths, one of the seven celebratory festivals that was required of men in the region to come to worship. It was the most festive of all. Jesus says to his brothers who wanted him, knowing that he was supposedly the Messiah, to push himself forward. He said, any time's good for you guys, but not for me. And so he did not do what they wanted him to do. And then once he gets closer to the hour coming, in the eighth chapter, in the 20th verse, he says, my hour has not yet come. And then once the Holy Week begins, two times before this time, one in 1223 of John, the other in 131, when he begins the process of introducing these men to the imminence of his leaving, but also passing the baton to them and telling them about his command that was the most important to the, him and to them, that they love one another even as he had loved them. And he washed their feet as an example to leave by the way we're to relate to each other. My hour has not yet come. What hour was that? It was an hour not like a specific time that Jesus knew on a specific day. Jesus knew it was coming. By this time, Jesus knew the day. But throughout his life, he just knew it was coming, and he knew because of his intimacy with the Father. He always is listening to the Father so that he will do what the Father says to do the will of God and so honor the God. He's always doing what the Father tells him to do. He's moving forward to the day that he was born into this world for. Galatians 4 tells us this. When the fullness of time came... God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman who was born under the law, that He might save us from our sins and also redeem all people outside of that small group of people who were descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel, as it were, Gentiles, that He would redeem us as sons and daughters. He would adopt us as sons. 
Jesus knew that's the reason why he had come. At what point he had that understanding, we don't know. Probably at least as early as the age of 12, you remember, when he went with his parents, perhaps to the first Passover that he had gone to, and his parents left, and one thought the other had Jesus with him or her, and then they, after traveling for over a day, can you imagine traveling for a day without your kids? Some of you would like that, I know that. But, you know, I mean, that's wild. But they had, there's a lot of background to that. I'm not going to go into why that would be probable. But they found him sitting in the temple with all the great teachers. And he was listening to them, and he was astonishing them as a 12-year-old. So by that time, he would have known it. But now the hour had come for him to do what he was sent to do. Why did God send Jesus into the world? This help get help from Paul. He said, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is what Christmas is about, isn't it? It's not about warm fuzzies, although there are plenty of those for us who know and love Christ. Plenty. But it's about Christ coming to die a cruel death on a rugged cross in shame, naked, spread-eagled between heaven and earth, rejected on earth, rejected in heaven for a period of time when he was on the cross in order that he could save us from our sins. The hour had come. I think Jesus was charged up about it, actually. He had dealt with his fears and his pleading with the Father, if it be your will, Lord, Take it away. That shows us the humanity of Jesus, doesn't it? He knew what lay ahead. He knew better than anyone could ever have known because of who he was. He was God. He understood it. He had probably been part of the architectural team that put together what we know as the gospel. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit collaborated undoubtedly in prehistory. So he was hurting at that time. But what we do know is that he yielded himself. After he'd settled the issue finally in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he walks out of that garden, and who does he encounter? Do you remember? He encountered a mob, as it were, comprised of temple police. They had come out. They were carrying torches. They had weapons with them. They were led to the spot where Jesus was, and they were led by the great betrayer, Judas. And Jesus speaks to them. Now, if you're trying to avoid getting hurt, you're not going to get in the face of the people who are coming to take you away without any arms on yourself. One of those in the apostles had a, a sword. We know him as Peter, and he whacked off the ear of one of the servants of the temple. And, but what we know is Jesus said to them, you remember what Jesus said? Whom do you seek? And what did they say? Jesus of Nazareth. And then what did Jesus say? I am he. And what did those guards do? To a man 
fell on the ground. Jesus didn't say, I am He, in His own language. The word He is supplied by our translators to help us make sense. He just simply said, I am. Does that ring a bell? What was He saying? I'm God. Boom. Down they go. And they would still be there today if He hadn't let them up. He, Jesus certainly was in charge up until he drew his last breath from the cross. He says, in, it's recorded in 19th chapter of John, he says, it is finished. He did not go out with a whimper, he went out with a bang. And then it says, he committed his spirit to the Father, he bowed his head and died. Most people die. They don't, they just die. They have no control over that. Jesus was in control all along the way. His hour came. He embraced it wholeheartedly as a victor, not a victim. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Jesus took the sting of death. And the power of sin is the law. Jesus kept the law perfectly. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our Redeemer and our Savior. Let's get back to the text and think about the whole idea of the main concern of Jesus in this prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He wanted God to be glorified. Now the word glory, we sang gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest in the Latin. And that is what we're to sing, isn't it? The angels sang that at the, no, the name of Jesus being referred to the shepherds and as Christ was born. But this is what glory means. We need to understand the background of the word itself. In the language of the New Testament, it means to seem or to appear. Or it is used in the book of Galatians chapter 2, three times in the first nine verses by Paul. It seemed to me, he says, it seemed to me, it seemed to me. As he was evaluating the fact that there, were this, there was this group of people known as the Judaizers who were coming to try to rob the new believers who were Gentiles in Galatia of their freedom in Christ by saying, you've got to keep the law. It seems to me, it seems to me, it seems to me. So the glory of God in Christ has to do with who He is. We get our word doxology, the first part of it at least, from the word translated glory. And so when we think of the glory of God and the glory of the Son, we have to factor in it has to do with His nature, His character. So He's pleading for 
God's glory that's connected to His being glorified by the Father. Now look at verse 5. Let's skip down there. Father, glorify me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is another aspect of glory. We have to go to the Old Testament for a moment. The word for glory in the Old Testament is the word which means weight. Weight. W-E-I-G-H-T. There's a heaviness associated with glory. We call it gravitas. You hear these people say that on the news, everyone, this person has gravitas. That's, they're saying he has or she has weight. There's weight in the character. There's the character, but there's also the weight. And there's another word that's used in the Old Testament frequently. In the book of Exodus, for instance, is the word Shekinah is the way it sounds in Hebrew. The Shekinah glory. You've heard that before, haven't you? And that Shekinah concept is there was always a light and there was a different kind of visible, palpable atmosphere around the glory of God. You probably recall that it was the habit of Moses when the tent of meeting was finally constructed, the Ark of the Covenant was made, that he would go into the holy place and he would stay there for what seemed like forever, for hours. It was like no time for him because he was in the presence of the Lord. But when he would come out, his face shone. The glory of God showed through him. Do you ever run across a person who, whose eyes and face really shine? I mean, it's hard to explain it, but you, there's something about her that's different. There's something about him which is different. And it, likely, if that person is a believer, of course, it's about the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. So the glory of the Lord has to do with character for sure. But the glory of the Lord also carried with it a demonstration of the power of God in some phenomenon. So Jesus had all the glory that God the Father had before He became one of us. And He's asking, He's petitioning that for Himself again. Please forgive me, Lord, if I'm being too colloquial here. I'm just going to ask you a question. I, th I, I know the answer. I'm asking the question, right? But the question is, do you think Jesus got homesick for heaven? Well, I think He did. Think about when He left in order to become one of us. He got homesick. Any of you ever get homesick? I don't have a home to go to anymore. My parents are in heaven. I'm looking forward to going to heaven so I can be with them to some degree in heaven. But Jesus was wanting to go home, I think, more than we could ever imagine. And in verse 2, he goes on to talk about, Jesus does, about what the Father has given to him. He speaks about three gifts, actually, as we wind this time up together today. He says, even in verse 2 of 17 of John, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, some of your translations say all mankind. The word flesh 
is actually the word. Sarx is the word in the New Testament language. And most often in the New Testament, that word is used in a negative way, isn't it? It's talking about our own selfishness. But it is also used to talk about our humanity, too. You have given me authority over all mankind. That's a good interpretation, by the way, that I believe the English Standard Version, maybe the NIV translation does that too. Over all mankind. Jesus has authority over all mankind. Now let's read a little further here in verse 2. That to all whom you have given me, he may give eternal life. So, Father, God, gave to Jesus people. My favorite verse in this regard is John 6, 37. We looked at 38 from John chapter 6, but let's go back and read with our own eyes, not just listen with your ears. John 6, 38. Actually, it's 37. We looked at 38 earlier. Look at 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And certainly not cast out really doesn't capture the intensity of what Jesus says. The intention is there, of course, but the intensity. Jesus, in the strongest possible way, choosing the strongest words and structure of words was saying there's no possibility when someone is given to me that I would throw them away because they are a present from God the Father to me. We oftentimes and always rightly talk about how salvation is a gift, isn't it? We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It is a gift from God. We've been saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But I doubt too many of you have ever pondered the fact of what Jesus says here. The hand of Jesus, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. We are a present from the Father to the Son. That dignifies everyone who knows Jesus Christ. We are a gift from God, the Father, to Jesus. And He's not going to throw us away. Isn't that exciting to think about? We are secure in Christ. Look at verse 44 of chapter 6 of John. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How do we get to Jesus? No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. This word translated draw is used by James in the second chapter of his epistle to describe people who are poor being dragged into the court because of their failure to pay their debt to their creditor. Dragged against their will. And I love what C.S. Lewis said about his conversion. He said, I was dragged kicking and stringing, uh, screaming into the kingdom of God. He couldn't resist, though. The irresistible grace of God pulled him in. Now, that was not my experience. 
and everybody has his own or her own description of your testimony, but you came not by your own will. You were brought into the presence of God. Time will not permit us to look in any great detail at the doctrine of election in Scripture, but any serious reader of Scripture will understand that this is a doctrine that's all over the Bible. Let's look, see what Peter says about it. And 1 Peter 1.20. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake. And then put that together with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, which says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, using the same words the in prehistory. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In the book of Jonah, Jonah, who was a hater of Gentiles, we know that, to the degree that he took his life into his own hands and fled in the opposite direction from Nineveh, where God had sent him to preach repentance to that great city of Nineveh, the Assyrian city, the capital. And he says in Jonah 2.9, salvation is from the Lord. If you're saved, you had nothing to do with it. It was the work of God. And you might say, wait a minute, Mike. Doesn't John 1.12 say, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And I would say, absolutely. Absolutely. We need to read the next verse, though. Who are born not of blood, nor the will of man, nor the will of the flesh, but born of God. Who gives the new birth? It is God. Whose idea was it? It is God's idea. And it's He who calls us out of darkness into His marvelous light. He regenerates us first. We're dead, Ephesians 2. Have you read Ephesians carefully? Or just listen to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Learn those. Those are great verses. But they fit our doctrine, don't they? Thank God they do. But sometimes we don't read the whole part of a book and listen carefully. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And later in the book of Ephesians, the Bible says this, that we're not only dead, we're blind. We can't see, we can't hear, we don't, we're dead people. But God gives us the new life, the new birth. And that is what makes it possible for us to believe and receive Christ as our Lord. I thank you. I remember when I received Christ, I was a boy I had no understanding of the doctrine of election. I still don't understand it fully. It's odd to me in some ways. But I know it's true because it's in Scripture, and I remember what the Bible says in Isaiah 55, and you do need to also, that my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And through many trials in my life, most of which I have contributed to, what I've discovered is there's no sense in disagreeing with God. Just do and believe what God says to do and agree. And in His way, in His time, He will help you with that. 
And it's not something that makes somebody smarter or knowing more because everything we know comes from whom? The Holy Spirit's our teacher. And we have to be in that position of humility before Him. So let's go back. We see, first of all, the Father gave Christ authority. Then the Father gives people to Christ. And by the way, the word give in associated words, give in the present tense, gave in the past tense, this word is used 17 times in these 26 verses. 66 times it's used in John. To my knowledge, there's only one verse in John that speaks of grace. Speaking of Christ, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the only time it's used. But grace is about the giving of God to us what we never deserved or could have gotten on our own. Isn't that true? That's what grace is. So this emphasis on giving is very important. So let's look at the last part of verse 2. That he may give eternal life. Well, it's a good place to start. Next week we're going to pick up there. And we're going to spend the time next week considering what eternal life is and how we can live in that eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand that which is hard to understand. And Lord, we thank you that by your grace, you saved us. And by your grace, you teach us. And by your grace, you protect us. And by your grace, you make us more like yourself. And we just ask, Lord, that you will continue your work in our lives. Please, Lord, help us to be attentive every day. Help us to be men and women who come to you in humility, in prayer, and in Bible reading regularly so that we can know your will and therefore do it and find ourselves pleasing to you in our carrying out of your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.